Well, Your Royal Highness, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to see you again. It seems as if it was just a couple of weeks ago that we last saw each other. And it seems that way because it was just a couple of weeks ago that we last saw each other in your country. And again, it's great to see you again. On November 20th, 1977, Egyptian President Anwar al-Sadat delivered an historic speech before the Knesset in Jerusalem, thereby becoming the first leader of an Arab nation to visit Israel. And in his address, Sadat told the members of Parliament, and I quote, there are moments in the lives of nations and people when it is incumbent upon those known for their wisdom and clarity of vision to survey the problem with all of its complexities and vain memories in a bold drive towards new horizons. And those who, like us, are shouldering the same responsibilities entrusted to us are the first who should have the courage to make determining decisions that are consonant with the magnitude of the circumstances. End of quote. Now that was 36 years ago, and while the world was different in many ways, the shared obligation that Sadat spoke of to be peacemakers and advocates of justice holds true still today. And in fact, each of us has an undeniable stake and a clear role to play in the universal pursuit of improved stability and sovereignty and greater prosperity and security. Dr. Anthony, thank you for that introduction and thanks for the invitation to participate in this important conference. It is indeed an impressive assembly of individuals that are gathered here this afternoon. And ladies and gentlemen, I began my remarks by recounting President Sadat's words because I believe that as we look ahead to the future, an element of our dialogue must remain focused appropriately on the past. There are many lessons to be gained from history. And certainly it is remarkable when you consider all that has been accomplished over the years by generations of leaders and individuals from different countries. We have come a long way and achieved much together. And there is tremendous evidence of the impact of our collective assets and energies on security and stability around the globe. And certainly the progress that has been made in parts of the Middle East is undeniable. While so too are the immediate and long-term consequences of failure. The Middle East is rich in history and culture. There are numerous ethnic groups and languages and traditions represented. It is also home to three of the world's 
five major religions. At the same time, the area is incredibly dynamic and volatile and often chaotic. And when things go badly there, it, is, it has a clear and considerable impact. Indeed, the past has shown that when the region experiences any degree of strife and bloodshed or increased instability, every country there and others around the globe feel the effects. And of course, security and stability in the Middle East and in South and Central Asia are important to us and to our partners because of the potential impact on our vital interest. And those vital interests include the free flow of resources through key shipping lanes, most notably the Strait of Hormuz, and the defense of our homeland against the pervasive and persistent threat of terrorism and extremism, and the prevention of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. You know, since taking command of U.S. Central Command in March, I've done a lot to study the region. And I've made several trips there and met with senior government and military officials from our partner nations. And I talk routinely with the members of our 18 country teams and five U.S. component commands. And I can surely attest to there being a number of real, very real and pressing challenges present in that most important part of the world. Among the many concerns that keep me awake at night is the spread of ethno-sectarian violence that we're seeing throughout the region as well as the growing threat posed by radical Islamists and other extremist groups. If these activities spark further aggression, or if the events become linked, it could lead to a region-wide crisis lasting a decade or more. And meanwhile, these challenges are further complicated or aggravated by the availability of ungoverned spaces and other adverse conditions that are contributing to increased unrest and malign activity. And so as leaders, we must study and understand the unique dynamics at play along with the trends or currents that connect the various events and crisis together. For without this knowledge and an appreciation of history, we cannot hope to effectively influence outcomes or bring about a peaceful end to conflicts and situations as they arise. While much of our efforts are necessarily directed at managing conflicts, our charge is not simply to wage today's wars for a period of time. Rather, our intent is to achieve lasting and improve security and stability. And we do this by managing the current conflicts 
while also taking measures to address the various challenges and to prevent confrontations and other situations from escalating into conflicts, while at the same time pursuing opportunities and doing what we can to sh effectively shape outcomes in different areas. And our ability to do so is dependent in large part upon the might and the preparedness of our military, working in concert with other elements of U.S. power and influence to include our diplomatic efforts, both multilateral and bilateral, in our trade and energy, in cultural and educational endeavors. And our civilian leadership stands ready to employ all of these instruments of power in order to secure our vital interests across the Middle East and beyond. At the same time, we continue to focus a significant portion of our efforts on building partner capacity. And we do that largely through joint training exercises and educational endeavors and through foreign military sales and foreign military financing programs, and most importantly, by our continued presence in the region and through the strong relationships that we have established and we continue to cultivate with our partners and the senior leadership in, different, in the different countries. At the strategic level, we are principally focused on the out years. And yet we recognize that the actions that we take now in response to the current conflicts and the confrontations will inevitably and appreciably impact our ability to shape outcomes going forward. In other words, we must take care to do what is required today to set necessary conditions for the future. And for the sake of discussion, I'll talk about three of the challenges that we are presently facing. First is the conflict in Afghanistan. You know, I've traveled there a number of times in recent months, and I've seen firsthand the progress that has been made throughout the country over the past 12 plus years. A decade ago, when I was serving as the commander of the 10th Mountain Division, we helped the Afghans to stand up a second battalion of officers and trained soldiers. Just two battalions existed at that point. Today, their national security forces are comprised of some 352,000 Afghans representing every ethnicity and willingly working alongside each other. And now they are leading nearly all security operations in that country. The fact is that together we have accomplished a great deal in Afghanistan. And in doing so, we have improved the conditions there, and we have given the Afghan people a real chance and hope for a better life. The impact on literacy levels alone has been tremendous. And more importantly, the effects of increased literacy are irreversible. That said, there is still much work to be done. And significant hurdles lie ahead for the government and the people of that country. 
And we want to do all that we can to help preserve the hard-earned gains achieved over the years by the Afghans and by the U.S. and coalition forces. And we've made it very clear to the Afghan leadership that we desire to have an enduring relationship with them. And our hope is that we'll be able to reach an agreement that will enable us to maintain a presence and a constructive role there for the foreseeable future. Afghanistan has the potential to thrive and prosper. And I remain cautiously optimistic in my outlook. However, to achieve their potential, the leadership of that country will have to make the right decisions going forward. You know, here in this country, leaders faced similar challenges not too long ago. And in the early days of our young democracy, America's first president, George Washington, said of the citizens of this fledgling nation, and I quote, it is in their choice and depends on their conduct whether they will be respectable and prosperous or contemptible and miserable as a nation. This is the time of their political probation. This is the moment when the eyes of the world are turned upon them. This is the moment to establish or ruin their national character forever. End of quote. Afghanistan does hold tremendous potential. However, success will require that the government continue to mature in the wake of a successful transfer of power following the scheduled elections. And they will have to make a concerted effort to counter corruption, recognizing that in the end, if the Afghans choose to make poor decisions, the opportunity that they have been afforded could easily be squandered and the return of instability and diminished security and even tyranny will not only affect Afghanistan, but also the surrounding countries and the region as a whole. Meanwhile, the most challenging conflict facing the region is the civil war being raged in Syria. As you heard, Prince Turkey say earlier, to date, well over 100,000 individuals have lost their lives, and millions have been displaced from their homes as a result of this protracted conflict. And not only has it crippled Syria's economy, but it is also having a devastating impact on neighbor neighboring countries, to include Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, and Turkey. Syria represents one of the most complex scenarios that I have seen in my short 38 years of serving in the military. And one of the things that makes this so complex is the fact that it is a civil war based not on ideology, but instead on sectarian issues. And the situation is further complicated by the presence of chemical weapons. It's also made more difficult as a result of the proxy activity that we're seeing conducted in various parts of the country by a number of nation states, namely Iran. 
There's also substantial terrorist activity occurring in Syria and spilling over into the surrounding countries. In particular, there is widespread concern for the active presence of the Salafi Jihadist Network, Al Nusra Front. This group poses a significant strategic threat to countries in the region. And if left unconstrained, the growing presence of Al Nusra Front is likely to imperil the Middle East for many years to come. And equally concerning is the widespread recruitment being conducted by Al Nusra Front and other extremist organizations. And hundreds of fighters are entering Syria to wage jihad, and they are leaving and returning to their countries with weapons and valuable experience gained. Certainly, the opportunity to negotiate the removal of chemical weapons from Syria is an important one. And the progress made in pursuit of this key policy objective reflects the regime's professed willingness to cooperate. And this developed, at least in part, in response to the credible threat of the use of military force posed by the U.S. and our partners in the region. And we remain postured and ready to take action if called upon in the event that the regime does not fulfill its obligations during the agreed upon time frame. Removal of the chemical weapons will serve to diminish some of the complexity of the challenge that we're facing in Syria. It does clearly represent progress. However, it does not effectively address the larger issue of the ongoing sectarian civil war. The fact is that the conflict in Syria cannot and will not be resolved militarily. And this sentiment has been universally shared by every leader that I've talked with in the region. All agree that an end to the conflict will require a diplomatic or political solution. Until, and until such a solution is achieved, the fighting will continue and more lives will be needlessly lost. And left unchecked, the spread of violence and terrorist activity, activity emanating from Syria could result in a long, drawn-out conflict that extends from Beirut to Damascus to Baghdad to Yemen. And so while there are no easy or clear-cut solutions to the challenge, all of us have a vested interest in seeing a stable and secure Syria achieved. A Syria with a government that is inclusive of the different factions represented in that country. And as you are aware, there are many here in Washington and elsewhere who continue to work this issue very, very diligently. The final situation that I'll mention is the enduring challenge posed by Iran. Of course, our hope is that we will be able to achieve a diplomatic solution to the recurring nuclear issue. And to this end, senior members of our government continue to participate in talks with their counterparts as a part of the P5 plus 1 dialogue. We've also been encouraged to see and hear President Rouhani's recent public gestures and statements 
which seemed to indicate a desire to pursue improved relationships between our two countries. And we are hopeful that this will ultimately lead to greater peace and stability in the region. That said, our president has been clear. Our policy is one of prevention. The U.S. will not tolerate the development or use of nuclear weapons by Iran. And all options required to enforce this policy remain on the table to include the military option. And we at U.S. Central Command stand ready to support any and all policy decisions made by our president and our civilian leadership. I will also tell you that as I travel around and talk with leaders, their uneasiness with respect to Iran's perceived pursuit of a nuclear weapon is at least matched by their concern for the malign activity being perpetrated by Iran throughout the region. This includes various clandestine activities, as well as ongoing efforts to provide funding and arms and other supplies to proxy actors in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. This aggressive behavior is destabilizing and there is anxiety among, among some who worry that it will be allowed to continue unabated. However, as I have told our partners in the region, with or without a nuclear threat, the United States has been and will remain a force for stability in the Middle East. And while we welcome an expanded dialogue and we are hopeful for a future marked by improved cooperation, we, like our friends and allies, will always listen to what Iran says while paying even greater attention to their actions. And we will continue to stand ready to respond in the event that they pose a threat to the security of our people and our interests and those of our partner nations around the globe. Ladies and gentlemen, these are important and historic times. The challenges before us are undoubtedly great, and the consequences of failure are significant and lasting. That said, the actions that we take now in response to current conflicts will have an enduring impact on security and stability in the region going forward. And we must keep this in mind as we weigh alternatives and decide upon courses of action. Now, some have said that we should disengage from the Middle East and focus our efforts and attentions elsewhere. However, those who understand the dynamics and the enormity of the stakes involved recognize that this is not presently and likely will never be a viable option. We must and we will remain present and engage because any kind of instability in the region inevitably impacts not only the affected countries, but also, as I said earlier, the global economy and the security situation. As President Obama stated during his recent address at the UN General Assembly, and I quote, we deeply believe it is in our interest to see a Middle East and North Africa that is peaceful and prosperous. And we will continue to promote democracy and human rights and open markets because 
We believe these practices achieve peace and prosperity. End of quote. Indeed, the promotion of these and other universal values to include the rule of law and national sovereignty is central to ensure the continued security of our people and interests around the globe. We've heard it said that each generation must accept the mantle and bear responsibility for defending our shared values and safeguarding our interests. And this is absolutely the case. If we fail, it won't matter that our nation and our people were powerful and prosperous for centuries marked by great achievement. Indeed, history will be inconsequential if the way forward is, is defined by in indigence and subjugation. And to this point, again, the Middle East is extremely important because, as I said, what occurs there, good and bad, has shown to have an indelible impact on the global economy and security and stability in other parts of the world, to include here in the U.S. And so given the gravity of what's at stake, we must and we will remain present and engaged. And we will do our part to ensure a stable and secure region. Recognizing that, as that great statesman and policymaker, Dr. Henry Kissinger said, I quote, it is the task of statesmanship to bring about what must happen ultimately and save humanity untold suffering, end of quote. And all the while, we must keep a steady eye on the future, for we want to see a positive and lasting change achieved throughout the region. And for this to occur, we must look past the horizon and set goals for what we hope to accomplish by 2015 or 2020 or 2025, and so on. And then we must determine what seeds need to be planted, what levers need to be pulled now in order to set the condition to achieve those desired outcomes. And acknowledging that it will take all of our efforts we must aspire to look beyond our differences and work together in shared pursuit of these difficult yet most noteworthy endeavors. We can make a significant and lasting difference through our actions. And by cooperating and collaborating and effectively focusing our efforts, we can make circumstances better and safer and more prosperous not only for a particular country or region, but for the world. And I do believe, ladies and gentlemen, that that should be our principal ambition as patriotic and productive members of society. Thank you again for the opportunity to join you here today, and may God bless each and every one of you.